Hey, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 22, this morning. While we're turning there, if we were to do a survey here this morning and ask you to indicate which book of the Bible is your favorite, which one do you suppose uh, you would uh, put down on your survey response? Well, for a lot of people, uh, the favorite book of the Bible varies a bit from time to time. I know there's been certain seasons in my life where I've gravitated towards certain books of the Bible. But I think if uh, we were to tabulate the results of that survey and release them to you, there's no doubt in my mind that the Psalms would probably end up at least in the top three, if not number one. Why is it that we love the Psalms so much? Well, the Psalms have been called the daily diary of people in a flat-out love relationship with God. And that love relationship with God isn't just one that is speaking about the highlight moments in the mountain peaks. We find how the love of God applies to the whole spectrum of life in very poetic, very emotive ways when we turn to the Psalms. You know, one of my favorite psalms, and I think one of the keys to understanding why the psalms tend to resonate so much with our hearts, is Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, my refuge, my rock, my God in whom I trust it is you who deliver me from the snare of the trapper and the deadly pestilence. For you will cover me with your feathers, and in the shadow of your wings I may find refuge. Wow, what a beautiful statement. But do you notice in that statement there's a word that's repeated twice, the word refuge. And boy, when you read through the Psalms, you start bumping into that word, that God is our refuge quite a bit. 22 times in the Psalms, the word refuge is used to describe our relationship with God, which raises a very important question for us to meditate upon this morning. Is God your refuge today? Have you discovered exactly how to avail yourself of that covering, protecting, nurturing, strengthening relationship with God that could only be described as a refuge. Oh, that refuge in our relationship with God is out there and available to every born-again believer in Jesus. The big question, I think, is how do we lay hold of that? How do you enter into that refuge, especially in times like the ones we're living in now, where so many people are being run by their fears where anxieties seem to multiply, where every time we turn on social media or the news, there's another great reason to be freaking out. How can we find our way to the shadow of God's wings? Well, that refuge is available to each and every one of us through the avenue of personal prayer. How do we enter into the kind of prayer where we don't just pray till it hurts, in a sense, but pray till it helps. Well, this morning we're going to see Jesus do exactly that. In Luke chapter 22, if you've been with us in our study, 
You know that the shadow of the cross is looming large in the life of Jesus at this point. He knows he has maybe hours, maybe minutes, until his suffering begins in earnest when he is going to be betrayed by Judas Iscariot and the mob. And so he has seized the opportunity to be able to prepare his disciples for this eventuality. If you were with us last time, we saw that Jesus was telling them that different conditions require different responses in our walk with God. You might recall, he said to his disciples, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? This is Luke 22 and verse 35. They said, nothing. But he said to them, but now let him who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that that which is written about me must be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. Now, Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 53, applies it to himself, but maybe not in a way the disciples really would have enjoyed. He said, I was going to be numbered with the transgressors. It's been predicted. It's going to happen. And here's what you do. You prepare for that. You get ready for that. Just because I worked in a particular way in your life, in one set of circumstances, when he sent the disciples out to minister in Israel, when they were welcomed, in a sense, with open arms, when they found their every need was met, when they saw the Lord providing for them in miraculous ways, doesn't necessarily mean it's always going to be that way. They had to be flexible, and they had to be practical in terms of their preparation for what was about to take place. And maybe the most practical way the disciples could be prepared for the emotional and spiritual onslaught that was about to descend was not necessarily by taking inventory and making sure they had some money and even a couple of swords to defend themselves. It was through an incredibly powerful but often neglected resource that we call prayer. And that's where we pick things up in verse 39. There we read, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And when he was withdrawn from them, about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. For an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose from prayer and he came to the disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Now, there's a whole lot here that we can explore. But let's begin with something really basic. If you knew that you were facing your moment of truth, you knew that arguably the single greatest challenge, the single greatest trial and temptation would ever befall you was going to come your way. When you found yourself literally in a life or death set of circumstances and knew you had but minutes before it was all going to go down, how would you invest that time? What would you do if you knew your world was on the edge of falling apart? Well, here we see Jesus having a very different set of priorities than we do. In this world that is so dominated by fear and anxiety and and bad turning to worse, 
Most of us, let's face it, if we were in that set of circumstances, would find ourselves falling back on the wisdom of this world, which essentially goes something like this. When in fear or in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout. That's really where we would probably be. But notice what Jesus does. He turns to the avenue of prayer. Now, <laughs> this is one of those, it goes without saying, but it probably needs to be said because we, when it's all said and done, need to hear this. Let me ask you a question. How important as a priority on a daily basis in your life is prayer? Do you turn to prayer when you've got no other alternative? Do you turn to prayer when, well, maybe things sort of settle down and smooth out and you've got some time for it? Or does prayer come first and foremost within your life? Now, one of the things I've discovered about my life personally, your mileage may vary, but it's certainly true of me, is that the way that I tend to respond to the big challenges in my life is really a reflection of how my prayer life connection is with God. But, you know, whether I do well, whether I don't, really kind of comes down to, am I cultivating that relationship with God through the avenue of prayer? And, and the best way to do that, believe it or not, and, and here's, uh, you know, again, uh, some 30 years of ministry and a seminary education sharing a deep truth with you, Maybe the best way to make sure that we have prayer as our right priority is to pray, to, to, to make sure that you are praying. Can I ask you a, a really challenging question? Getting your act together and coming down here to church. You know, when the alarm went off, it's Sunday morning. You know, I don't know who it was, but it was probably satanic emissary who invented the snooze alarm. You know, you hit that a few times, and you get, oh, yeah, I better get up and get going. Here we go. You know, and, and, and oh, yeah, we got to get this together and that together. We got to make ourselves presentable and all this. You know, and then you get down here. Uh, how many times, I ask a convicting question, do you come to church in a state of prayerlessness? And you're sort of hoping that what happens here in church is going to jumpstart your heart. Well, that happens, obviously. God is a gracious God. He knows what we're like, and, uh, you know, you come to church, and, and we have that time of worship, and hopefully you can settle your heart down and, and, and seek the Lord and, and find Him during this time and, and be ministered to. That's certainly something we pray for. But one thing I have discovered the hard way is this. If I'm not prayed up before I go to church, chances are I'm not going to get everything out of church that I could get out of church if my heart was rightly aligned with the Lord before I even got there. And you know, the same is true about our lives each and every day. God wants prayer to be a priority. Why isn't it a priority? Because, let's face it, other things have a funny way of taking the priority of prayer within our lives. You know, a few years back, there was a marvelous little booklet uh, written that really impacted my life. It was called The Tyranny of the Urgent. And what the thesis of the tyranny of the urgent was all about is that what usually happens in our lives is the important things in life tend to be crowded out by the urgent things in life. Those things that are waiting to say, you better deal with me, man. You know, get you the practical stuff. And, 
And, you know, we're so busy putting out the little fires in our lives, the, the, the book says, that, that we don't even stop to realize why there's little fires going on in our life. But as long as we are focused on the little fires and never get around to dealing with the roots of the problem, dealing with the things that are really important in life, our, our life suffers. Uh, stop and think about your relationships on the horizontal for just a second before we even deal with the heavenly, right? How are, would your relationships be if you dealt with your personal relationships, invested in your personal relationships in the same avenue in the same way that you uh, invest in prayer? You know, well, you know, I, I know I definitely need to spend some time with the people that mean the most to me, but, you know, I've got so much going on in my life right now. And, 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 and you know, and, 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 you know, there's, there's this, uh, this thing on Sasquatch on cable TV, and I got to watch that first. And, and, hey, you know, relationships left to themselves, like everything else in this fallen world, don't tend to get better, right? You've you got to invest in those relationships to see them progress. Same is true about prayer. Prayer has to be a priority. And, and you know, I, I don't mean to make this sound like something legalistic. So with that disclaimer in place, the thing I've discovered is this. If I don't start my day with prayer, I never get around to it. Have you ever noticed that? God wants us to start our day in prayer. Psalm 5 this beautiful psalm, you know, we talked about how the psalms are this, this wonderful daily diary uh, of a life spent in love with the Lord. But even more than that, uh, I think the psalms are as well a beautiful kind of how-to as far as having a genuine relationship with God. And, and, you know, a great example of this is found in Psalm 5. In Psalm 5 and verse 1, uh, we read this. And, and I think it's definitely something that uh, bears repeating. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For unto you will I pray. My voice shall you hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct my voice unto you and will look up. Now notice what the psalmist says. In the morning, Lord, I'm going to pray. Now, that doesn't mean you can't pray at noon or in the evening, but I found something. If I take the time to check in with God, to spend time with Him in prayer, it radically revolutionizes the way the rest of my day goes. It changes my perspective. I'm not locked in on the horizontal. It gives me a sense of intention and purpose and direction for my life. I'm not just bouncing off one crisis situation to another. It gives me the ability to be able to commune with the Lord, not just to speak to Him and to cast my cares on Him, and, and boy, you know, the saves you the Maalox moments for sure, but also as I pray, the Lord speaks to me. He brings scriptures to my mind. He, he, he gives me his wisdom on things. I realize in a wonderful moment, I'm not alone in this world. God promised I will never leave you and never forsake you. If you don't pray, he's still there. But where are we? Are we connecting with him? Are we enjoying his presence? Are we able to avail ourselves of that living relationship with him? Can I exhort you this morning, give you a homework assignment? 
This next week, uh, instead of hitting the snooze alarm for the third time, take 10 minutes, you know, usual time of a snooze alarm. Get up early and just take 10 minutes to spend a little time with the Lord. To be away from anywhere and anything that can interrupt you if you possibly can. And spend a little time with Him. Just pour out your heart to Him. Share with Him the things that matter to you. Remind yourself of the promises of God's Word. And, and as you pour out your heart to the Lord, see if it makes an incredible difference. The, the, the problem with so many of our prayer lives is that we think we're going to get around to it once we get everything else taken care of. I guarantee you, the wicked one will make sure you never get around to taking care of all those things because he doesn't want you to pray. Prayer is our lifeline. Prayer is our connection with God. And Jesus put that first. Now notice, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. Now, a very interesting uh, positional insights that we get about Jesus' prayer life here. He goes with his disciples. We we're told he goes to the place, singular there. Now, what is the place being referred to here? Well, this is why we have more than one gospel account. The eyewitness accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because here we get some interesting insights. Not only to where Jesus prayed, but how he prayed. From the book of Mark chapter 14. You might want to thumb over there real quick. In Mark chapter 14 and verse 32, we are told, Then they came to a place which was called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took James and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He then went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass for him, from him. Wow, really interesting stuff here. First of all, we are told where the place of prayer was. It was the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, if you go with us on a tour to Israel, uh, part and parcel of those tours is going to the Garden of Gethsemane. We know precisely where it is. And, uh, you know, if your tour is done right, they will give you some moments there in Gethsemane to, to pray. And it's really a marvelous thing because uh, Gethsemane, even to this day, uh, is featured with these really ancient olive trees that are there. I mean, just with these huge roots to them. Now, there's, uh, you, know, you hear different speculations and rumors about how old these olive trees are. Uh, some say, well, they go all the way back to the time of Christ. Probably not. Uh, the, the oldest olive tree they've been able to figure out there for certain uh, dates to about 400 AD or so. But that's still going back uh, a long ways. These trees have been there an awful long time. But notice there are olive trees, and I think that's significant because the word Gethsemane doesn't mean olive grove. It literally means the place of an olive press, a place where olives can be pressed and the valuable oil that comes out of olives can be harvested. I don't think it's any accident that this is where Jesus was praying because in order to get the valuable part of the olive, the olive oil. 
the olives would be put into a place where they would be crushed to produce something essential. Two things, generally speaking, that olive oil was used for in that society. First, it was used for healing. It was medicinal. And secondly, it was used to provide fuel for lamps. Healing and light were going to come out of this place of crushing. Wow. <laughs> There's a little insight there for us. I don't know if you've ever uh, taken stock of your life and looked at it and said, man, you know, uh, somebody told me that, uh, you know, as soon as I became a born-again Christian, all my problems would be over. <laughs> if someone ever told you that, uh, boy, you know, find somebody else to evangelize you because uh, it just ain't true. Sure, some major problems are over when you give your life to Christ. You're not going to hell anymore. That's good. You're, you don't have to carry around a huge weight of guilt anymore. That's great. You never have to be alone anymore. Jesus is the friend who will never leave you and never forsake you. Serious problems get solved when you become born again. But some serious problems also are added to the list. Sin, self, and Satan start going to war with you. And you encounter these fiery trials, and you find yourself saying to yourself, wow, you know, here I thought the Christian life was going to be abundant and full, and, and, and this guy said that all my problems were over, and now it just seems like I have one problem after another. Well, understand something. Jesus never promised you an easy life. He promised you an abundant life. The word abundant means fruitful. You know, the only way we bear fruit is by being crushed. I'm convinced. The only way that we have significant ministry is when, uh, <laughs> for lack of a better term, we've been rode hard and put away wet a few times. Why is that so true? Second Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3 gives us an insight into this. There we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who so wonderfully comforts us who are in any affliction that we might comfort others with the same comfort whereby we are comforted by God. Now, there's a lot of comfort in that verse, right? But notice why we need to be comforted, because there's trouble in our lives. Why is there trouble in our lives? Because God wants you to learn how to minister to people in the most effective way anyone ever will. You know what the most effective form of ministry is? Being able to look somebody in the eye and say, man, I know exactly what that's like. I've been there, and this is what the Lord has done for me. Yeah, uh, apart from that, it's just theory. And we've all got our own Gethsemanes, if you will, those places where the Lord crushed us a bit so that healing and light can come from our lives. And you know, the thing I love about Jesus is, is this. Jesus always goes first, doesn't he? He always leads in terms of what he calls us to be and do as his followers. And so this place of Gethsemane is very significant. The posture of Jesus described here in Mark chapter 14 is very interesting. Notice it says he was falling down. Now, sometimes we are told that Jesus withdrew, and according to the Gospel of Luke, he knelt down and prayed. Yeah, that is probably true. But Mark adds an additional detail here. It says he was falling down. In other words, Jesus probably began by kneeling, which is a perfectly acceptable position of prayer. Nothing wrong with kneeling when you pray, as long as 
You're not doing it out of routine or ritual. Uh, whatever you do when you pray, even if it's something that's kind of hip and new and with it and people are excited, lifting your hands. Nothing wrong with lifting your hands when you pray as long as you can answer this question. Why am I doing that? Why am I lifting my hands to the Lord? You know, when, when I lift my hands to the Lord, you know, the, the idea in, in Jewish thought was when you would lift your hands to God, you were coming to God and saying, you know, here's the cup of my life. Please, Lord, fill it. It's a beautiful position in prayer. It's a position of receptivity when we pray. But even more, you know, I, I've come to understand that when I come to the Lord and I lift my hands to him, it, it strikes me like a little child coming to their daddy and saying, Daddy, just pick me up. I just want to be held in your loving arms. That's, that, that's another beautiful expression of that. The other beautiful expression is if you want to go all the way like this, is you might want to recall what Galatians chapter 2 Verse 21 says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I myself no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Man, I'm doing this because, Lord, I want to die to myself. I don't want to do this because I want people to look at me and go, oh, wow, they're lifting their hands, how spiritual. No, I want to make it matter. And so if you decide to kneel, great position in prayer, what you're doing when you kneel is saying, Lord, you are, you are the great king. You are it. You are the one who's in charge of my life, and I kneel before you, I bow before you, and acknowledge you as my great king. That's awesome. But that's not all Jesus did. Notice it says in Mark, he was falling down. The language here is really vivid. It carries the idea not just of Jesus stumbling once. It carries the idea of Jesus stumbling, getting back up, and falling again in a continual manner. In other words, Jesus was so emotionally and spiritually overwhelmed at that moment that he was literally staggering. He was staggering under the weight of what lay ahead for him. Not just the fear of what physical crucifixion would be like. If I knew I was going to be crucified and go through the whole torturous routine that was ahead of him, that would be enough to stagger me. But the thing that was really staggering to Jesus is encapsulated in the prayer that he prayed. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What was Jesus overwhelmed by? The cup. You know, in the Old Testament, we are told that God's wrath is poured out in a cup of his indignation. When Jesus was going to suffer and die on the cross, the worst part of the whole thing was not going to be just the physical torture and the physical pain he was going to go through, which shouldn't be understood by anyone. You know, when we look at the crucifixion of Jesus, the only perfect man was crucified and dispatched in such a way that the full nature of the wickedness and evil of human hearts was on display. There was no worse way to die than crucifixion. Now, 200 years after the time of Christ, even the Romans lost their stomach for it. It was that bad. And so the physical part was bad, but the spiritual part was even worse. Because the Bible tells us something. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God took every sin that any human being had ever committed, any sin that human beings were committing at that time, Father, forgive them, they know what, not what they do. 
And every sin that human beings would ever commit, including the sins that you and I commit, he's taken all of that upon himself. And when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When the sky and the world turned dark, the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus so that you and I could be forgiven. Notice Jesus prayed, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. A couple things here. Notice Jesus said, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. What Jesus was praying, in essence, was this. If there was any other way to save us, if there's any other way that the justice of God, God is perfectly just. He can't look the other way and wink and nod or just say, oh, well, you know, I'm all loving. I don't really care about wickedness and evil. As a just God, he must punish sin. But as a loving God, he must find a way to show mercy to sinners. There was only one way to pull that off where both could be satisfied. And that was Jesus becoming a man, living a perfect sinless life. But as a man being able to die, the wages of sin is death, right? We all deserve the death penalty. Jesus died in our place. But as God, he could offer a sacrifice of eternal value that applies even to you and me today. What Jesus was saying is if there's any other way to do it, any other way to save him, Lord, do it. I don't want to go through this. And the honesty of Jesus in that set of circumstances should speak to our hearts about how we pray. Are you honest when you pray? Really? Or, or do you kind of come before God and say, okay, uh, what does God want to hear from me? You know, I know, you know, on the inside, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm disappointed, I'm frustrated. But, uh, oh, Lord, thou art the great sovereign of all time. You know, you know I, I'm sure when we pray prayers like that, I mean, we, we mean well, but I'm sure God just looks at us and says, who are you trying to kid here? God knows you inside and out. You can't snow him with a little King James English, Right? He wants to know what's going on in your heart. In fact, we're told in the book of Hebrews, uh, the idea of coming boldly before the throne of grace, the word boldly is uh, made up of two Greek words that are fused together. The words to say and the other word is anything. You can say anything to God because he already knows. Now, again, that should be accompanied by reverence. That should be accompanied by an understanding of who we're talking to. But understand something. You can say anything to God. Jesus did. If it is your will, let this cup pass from me. And, and I'm here to tell you something. Spoiler alert. The cup didn't pass. There was no other way to save us. If there was any other way to save us, if we could be saved by some sort of heroic action, if we could be saved by achieving some state of consciousness, if we could be saved by getting ourselves committed to religious rituals or church membership or you name it, the cup would have passed. But it didn't pass. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 21 says this, if righteousness, a right relationship, comes by the law, that is by us doing nice things for God, then Christ died needlessly. There was no other way. 
You know, oftentimes I'm asked by skeptics or non-believers, uh, it's not really an ask, it's more of a declaration. Well, you Christians say your way is the only way. How can you say that? Isn't that a little narrow-minded? Well, my response to that is pretty direct. First of all, I don't say it. I'm not the one who came up with it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You got a problem with it? Take it up with him, right? But secondly, there's a reason why he said that. Because no other religious approach to God can bridge the gap between holy God and fallen sinful man. There was no other way. Jesus asked, if it be your will to take this cup away from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, notice uh, Jesus' prayer is sandwiched between two statements. Father, if it is your will, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, these days, there is a school of thought that has sort of crept into Christian circles, a wind of doctrine, if you will, that I think really needs to be addressed here. There are those who will say, you know, if you've got faith in God and you claim his promises and you believe his promises, you can write your own ticket with God. You can tell God what you want to have done in your life. And if you have faith in the power of your faith, whatever you say, you can bring it to pass. And boy, you know, it sounds great, right? Wow, that's fantastic. I don't want to be sick. I want to be wealthy. I want everybody to love me. God, 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 I'll find a verse or two and I'm going to believe that. And, and you got to come through. And uh, full disclaimer, you know, people get involved with what's called the faith movement. I, you know, bless their hearts. I, I love the fact that they do really uh, have something going for them in that they do expect God to actually work within their lives. They, they, they do expect God to do miracles in their lives. And I think as such, we can learn a thing or two from them. But here's where it goes to seed. It goes too far. So much so that a notable faith teacher, Freddie Price, was famously quoted as saying that if you pray, if it be your will, that's a faith killer. Then you don't have to trust God. You've given yourself an out. You don't have to believe God anymore. It's a faith killer. Because then, if it does now, well, it wasn't God's will. You know, <laughs> uh, bless their hearts, the faith and prosperity teachers who teach this need to ask themselves this question. If that's true, then why did Jesus pray, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, praying, if it be your will, isn't a faith killer. It's a faith fulfiller. Why? Because we are told in the Scripture to cast our cares upon God because He cares for us, right? Be anxious for nothing, but in all things through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Extravagant promises, right? We are to pray. We are to come before the Lord with the things that matter most to us. You're in a situation where you've gotten a diagnosis from a doctor you never dreamed would come your way. Bring it to God. You're in a situation where your ends and your means aren't coming together and you don't know how you're going to pay the bills. Bring that to God. You're in a situation where a relationship you thought was going to last a lifetime has just fallen through your hands like sand. Bring it to God. 
You're in a situation where you find yourself in a place where you're going, oh, you know, I've, I've got this character flaw and this fault within my life in this area where I continually fall into sin, and it's never going to change. You bring that to God, and you ask Him to change your heart and make you like Jesus. Don't excuse your sin any longer. Bring it to the Lord. And see what he does. But when we bring these things that matter most to him, here's what you do. You say, Lord, here's what I'd love to see you do in this situation. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And, you know, you just don't mouth the words. They're just not empty platitudes we're talking about here. How passionate was Jesus in this prayer? We're told then... An angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Doctors call this particular condition identified here with a highfalutin name. They call it hematotrosis. This is not just something that happened to Jesus. It's been observed in other people. When people are under intense pressure, I mean overwhelming pressure, sometimes their blood pressure will skyrocket to the point where the capillaries, the tiny blood vessels that are right underneath the skin, will rupture. And in rupturing uh, through the sweat glands, you will see drops of blood begin to form, and, and it begins to pour out all over these people. That's exactly what Jesus was talking about here. That tells me something. The pressure and intensity upon him was nearly life-threatening at this point. I can't even imagine like this. And this is the idea of praying earnestly here. You know, it, it reminds me of a powerful passage in the book of Hebrews chapter 5 and uh, verse 7 that speaks about Jesus' prayers for us. In the days of his flesh, we are told, he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest. That's how intensely Jesus prayed, not for himself, but for you and me at that point. Because he doesn't get to the cross. He doesn't die on that cross. We're not saved. He is praying for you at that moment. He's praying for me. And you know, when we look at this, when we see this intensity of prayer, can I ask you another convicting question? How intense are you in your prayers? How emotionally engaged are you when you pray? Or is it just rote and ritual and routine? Well, you want to see rote, ritual, and routine? Be around Christians when they pray over a meal, Right? You know, through the teeth, over the gums, look out, stomach, here it comes. That's pretty as intensely invested we are in these times. You know, we, we rattle off, uh, you know, for a good meat, good bread, good Lord, let's eat. You know, I, you know that, that sort of thing. But when Jesus prayed, he prayed like he meant it. He prayed not just intellectually, not just spiritually, not just doctrinally, but emotionally. Can I ask you a question? When was the last time you cried when you prayed? When was the last time you laughed when you prayed? Are you emotionally engaged when you pray? Or is it just another routine, ritual, religion? We say Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. 
best way to gauge whether you're getting that or not is to look at your prayer life. You pour out your heart before God. That's where you find Him as your refuge. You know, here's the deal. Jesus didn't pray long in the Garden of Gethsemane, but He prayed like He meant it, and He was heard, we are told. The Lord delivered Him. The Lord gave him the wherewithal to be able to face the horrors, not only physically but spiritually, that awaited him on the cross. But it wasn't because of a length of prayer. It wasn't because of stapling a bunch of scriptures together when he prayed. Because of his heart, his vehement desire to seek the Lord. Because if you decide to seek the Lord when you pray, you're going to find him. And he's going to respond to you in powerful ways. Probably the single most powerful answer to prayer I've ever received happened in just that way. I'll never forget getting a phone call from my dad on a Friday. My dad had been struggling with lymphoma cancer. And uh, he called me and he said, well, I just got out of a meeting with my oncologist. He had gone through a time of remission. He goes, my cancer's back. And my oncologist told me that uh, the cancer has uh, compromised my adrenal gland. And uh, I only have uh, like a month or so to live. They're going to go back in and do another scan to see how far this thing's progressed. But I thought I'd let you know that. And, you know, my dad and I, you know, we had been at odds uh, ever since I became a born-again Christian, even more so after I decided to go into ministry because I was supposed to be the next lawyer in the family. My dad didn't believe in God at all at this point. And so I, I didn't even think about it. I just kind of blurted out. I said, well, Dad, can I pray for you? That was a real sore subject. There was kind of this silence, and he said, well, okay. And so I prayed, and I didn't pray some rip-roaring TV evangelist, come out, foul demon, you know, that sort of thing. All I said was, Lord, because I was just stunned and shocked by the man. I said, Lord, I pray if possible you would heal my dad. But whatever happens here, I pray you showed him, you'd show him how much you love him. In Jesus' name, amen. That was all I said. And there's a silence on the other end. And then he said, well, like I said, I'm going back in for this other scan. And I'll get the the results back on Monday. I'll let you know what happened. Okay, okay, great. Well, Monday, my dad calls me. And, you know, I pick up the phone. He goes, oh, man, you won't believe what happened. I, I, you know, I, I, I sat down and talked with my doctor. And, 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 and this doctor, by the way, we, we called him Dr. Pull the Plug because he was a brilliant uh, clinician. He was a brilliant oncologist. But he had no bedside manner whatsoever. He was a total scientist, right? So my dad sits down with Dr. Pull the Plug to get the results. And Dr. Pull the Plug looks at my dad and says, uh, Mr. Richards, before I share these results with you, I've got a question for you. He says, are you a religious man? My dad says, well, not particularly. Why? He goes, well, this is the scan we took of your adrenal gland. And here's the, you know, it was about 80% compromised. And this is, you know, here. He goes, this is the scan we took on Friday. There's not a trace of the cancer. There's not even a scar. He said, I have no scientific explanation for this. So I wanted to know if you were a religious man. And my dad says, your prayers, you know, your prayers. You have And I said, dad, 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 time out. It's not my prayers. It's God. He wants you to know how much he loves you. And believe it or not, I never thought my dad would come to know the Lord. I've been praying for him for 30 years. And I just thought, oh, well, you pray because you just pray. And nothing's not going to really happen. That was my great faith. But that's what it took. 
my dad gave his life to Jesus before he passed away. His cancer came back. Six years later, he passed away. But he passed into heaven. And that's the greatest miracle of all, isn't it? Pray, gang. Pray like you mean it. And if you mean it, here's some things to take away. Do you have a regular time with God before your day gets going? In the morning, does the Lord hear your voice? Boy, just work on making that a part of your life and see what a difference that makes. When you pray, check how you pray. Remember who you're talking to. Remember that God is awesome and He is mighty, but He is also compassionate and merciful. In Mark 14, Jesus addresses God as Abba, Daddy, Father. Is that who you talk to when you pray? Or is He the 700 foot tall of some representation of some critical parent you can never please? He loves you and He wants to show Himself strong within your life. Do you pray like you mean it? Do you understand who you're praying to? And do you pray not till it hurts? You pray till it helps. And you let God define what helps means. Because sometimes we got to go to the Gethsemanes of life. Sometimes we got to be crushed before the real good things, the beautiful fruit that God created you and me to produce really begins to happen. Oh, let's pray and ask the Lord to make prayer more a part of our life. Lord, we thank you for this trip to Gethsemane we've been able to take this morning. And we pray, Father, that you would look at our prayer lives. And if they become perfunctory, if they become religious, it's another to-do list checkoff point in our days. I pray you'd bring us up short. Help us to be people that understand that we can certainly do more than pray, but we can't do anything of significance until we pray. And Lord, as we pray, I pray that we would not be satisfied until we find that refuge that beautiful refuge you promise us in Psalm 91 and all through the Psalms, that we would find through prayer that way into the shadow of your wings, the comfort that you alone can bring to us, that comes from knowing that you've heard us, that you're going to answer us, and that even right now, Jesus, you are praying for us, your word says. And when you pray, things happen. Help us to be wise enough to take advantage of this great blessing and benefit we have, connecting with you, the true and living God. You love your people, and you delight in hearing your people's prayers. Answer our prayers, Lord. Show yourself strong and powerful, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.